because all my life I've done all those things. But what I really want to do is I want to inspire people to do it themselves. It, with my herbalist, with my beekeeping, I don't want to just sell honey. I don't want to just do um, healing work, aromatherapy. I want to inspire people to learn themselves to heal and to teach others. Hey, welcome to the Heirlooms and Herbs podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Vieira, community herbalist, yoga teacher, and newfound homesteader. And here we dive into all things herbalism, homesteading, wild food, foraging, sustainability, growing your own and the off-grid life, self-sufficiency, yoga, movement, meditation, and so much more. And of course, the thing that holds it all together, community, which is why I'm here with all of you. So let's jump on in. So I was first inspired by your work when I came across uh, your two talks at the IHS, so the International Herb Symposium. I think we've chatted about that a little bit, uh, the herbal honey infusions and the herbal synergy. And since I'm going down similar paths, I, I naturally was very drawn to you and your work and have been inspired by um, everything that I, I, I knew that you were doing. Um, and of course, have, have later found out that you're not just a beekeeper, an apitherapist, um, and an advocate for the bees. Um, you're also an aromatherapist, an herbalist, a life and health coach, Reiki practitioner, um, and teacher. Has You've done work in, in oriental body work and reflexology. And I'm sure that probably doesn't even cover it all. Um, but I, I know that gives people a, a pretty good idea of what your scope of practice looks like. But uh, for those who haven't come across your work before, um, can you share a little bit just about your journey and what that looked like for you and, and how you got to where you are today? I, I'm so curious uh, myself. Yeah, I would have to go back through my whole life and I can do yeah. probably in a few minutes, but um, I uh, just got a chill in my heart when you said, a good chill in my heart when you said that I inspired you because all my life, I've done all those things, but what I really want to do is I want to inspire people to do it themselves. It, with my herbalist, with my beekeeping, I don't want to just sell honey. I don't want to just do um, healing work, aromatherapy. I want to inspire people to learn themselves to heal and to teach others and to work with others. So um, I accomplished my goal. That was that was really nice to hear. Uh, I've been yeah. doing most of, or not most, like all of what I've been doing all of my life. I remember as a child, I would go in the garden with my great grandfather and the kids were playing and my mother was, I don't know where, and I'm out in the garden watching him pull some plants out and some leek and onions and just kind of telling me, a, not thinking I was interested, but telling me a couple of few things about it or showing me where the bees are and just like getting those little glimpses of how the whole ecosystem works together and we're a part of it. That as soon as I could find a piece of dirt that I wanted to, my mother would yell at me for digging holes in the yard, but I was going to plant something in there. And then it was in the fourth grade. It was the summer between third and fourth or fourth and fifth grade when we were moving. But that summer, I remember going into the woods and kind of saying goodbye to the plants and the wild strawberries and the little things that I would pick up and eat. And so it's just always been part of my life. And next week, I'll be 65. So that's like a big number that I can't even believe that I'm 65. But looking back at my whole life, I've always been who I am. And I've always done the same things. And I still just, I wake up in the morning, like, is it gonna, am I gonna do this outside? Am I gonna, today I have a bucket of honeycomb that's all slopped together in a bucket. And I'm gonna separate it and jar it and label it. And I 
still, I love like every single part of that. And if it were warmer outside, I'd be outside picking mints and making some infusions or something. But every day I still get up, I'm just excited about who I am and what I do and, and love doing it and love sharing it. Oh, that's amazing. Well, happy early birthday. <laughs> that's Thank exciting. You. And it's, it's cool to hear that about your journey too, because I find a lot of people that I come into contact with that grew up being exposed to this sort of stuff, they, they take it a little bit more for granted and maybe it, it just becomes, you know, the wallpaper in their li life and they don't go on to do anything with it. So I think that's really cool that it, it spoke to you on such a level that you're still doing this work today. And um, I think that it just speaks to your passion, right? If, if you get up every day and you're as excited as you are to be doing what you're doing, you're, uh, you're doing the right thing, it sounds like. So that's, that's amazing. And that's, and again, you did inspire me. And that's, you know, of course, our, our paths did cross in similar ways. But I, I think that's the whole goal with even, you know, herbalism. It's, I, I always think it's better if we can educate than if we can just um, tell people what they need. You know, if we can just spread that inspiration and people, you know, rekindle in that way. Um, I think it's just such a beautiful thing for, um, for everybody and no matter what that looks like. Um, and I, I do remember reading about your grandfather. So that's, that's amazing. And I think it's great that you had somebody in your life to introduce you to stuff so early on. So that's, that's really great. And it sounds like you haven't stopped working with um, honey and plants and it's just probably taken this organic path to, to where you are today. So what does your practice look like today? How, how are you practicing um, AP therapy and beekeeping and, and stuff today is does, that obviously looks different from years ago, but yeah, I'm, I'm working more purposely to work away from hands-on type work and uh, people direct to, I'm doing more writings and doing more things like this to get the word out kind of one-on-one, -on -one, but so it's spreading more. So I'm doing more articles, more writing. I'm doing, if I, uh, last week I'm in a reading group or writing group and with my writing group, we kind of fine tune this article that I wrote about taking honey and take my slop of honey and my comb and adding different pollens to it. And since you understand this and you do this too, specifically what I do is I'll get comb from a couple different hives. So I can tell it's different from um, the, the colors of the honey will be a little bit different or the color of the comb might be a little bit different. So one comb might be a little bit older, so it's darker and I'll put it in a container and then I'll put some clover honey over it and maybe also some wild flower Georgia honey over it. So it has different combs, different honeys. And some purist beekeepers don't like when I do this, but I believe all that those properties and all of those are, are better for our bodies and um, more intense. Absolutely. And then I'll and then I take pollen and I'll have pollen from last spring, from last fall, from here, from a friend of mine. I had a lady in Alaska. We got to be good friends through a beekeeping group. She was sending me propolis and bee pollen from Alaska for a little while. So I'll take, and then I got, I have a little bit of pollen left from Hawaii from somebody sent me. So I'll take those pollens and just put them in a little jar. So they're all, they're from dark to greens, to yellows, to reds, to whites, and mix them up a little bit. And then I sprinkle them on the the honeycomb and cover them a little bit with honey. And then I have little packages of honeycomb, but it's honeycomb with extra pollen. And it's just medicinal. It's not somebody was here and just bought some today and wanted to know, do I put up my coffee or do I put the comb out or what do I do? I'm like, it's like a medicine. It's like all the parts are so medicinal. The uh, comb, which a lot of people don't like or spit out or don't know what to do with has um, enzymes that are good for the gut and for gut health. 
So um, that's my latest thing that I'll be doing as I'm stuck in the house and um, writing about it. And, and those are the types of things that I'm enjoying more and leaning towards more than working with people uh, doing the hands-on. That sounds, that sounds like very interesting work. And I think it's cool how it, it changes over time. Like even if you pick the same modality, say like beekeeping, even if you do it all your life, I'm sure you can speak to this, that it never looks the same, even day to day, it looks so different. Um, and I, in, in reading too, and just so people know as well, um, I know that you are a, a natural beekeeper and, and can you kind of describe what that means as opposed to the alternative? Yes, and there's extremes to that too. So there's some people, I meet some people that are natural beekeepers and they'll say, well, I only feed so much sugar to my bees during the year. And to me, natural beekeeping is not feeding sugar to the bees and um, letting the bees. So if I have eight hives, some will get weak and they'll die out. Well, instead of constantly spraying and putting antibiotics and um, requeening or trying to save the weaker ones, I work with the stronger ones and make help the stronger ones to be stronger and let the weaker ones do whatever they're going to do, fly away or die off or whatever. Yeah. And then um, as far as then having stronger bees, then those are better bees to breed and to expect to have longer and that type of thing. So um, beekeepers, commercial beekeepers, or beekeepers in general will say, well, I have to use miticides, I have to use insecticide or whatever. I have to use antibiotics or I'm gonna lose them. And then the next year they're like, well, I lost them anyways. So right. um, sometimes, sometimes it's just a crapshoot. I've done, I've been beekeeping since 2008 and I've had years I've done like every single thing right and buy the book and track everything and I'll lose bees. And other times I'm like, I don't have time to baby them and do this and do all that stuff. And they just flourish. So when I'm working with new beekeepers, I say it's kind of a crapshoot, <laughs> which, which it shouldn't be. And, but there's um, an art to beekeeping and there's a science to it. And we can do all that we can and still there. It's like the weather. We can maybe think we can control it, but can we really? Absolutely. So I just, um, and I've had times that I've lost all my bees and I've started all over again and other times that they've just flourished. And, and then I have, and, and uh, one thing that's been coming to me a lot with the work that I've been doing, just packaging up these combs is beekeepers will think that they're raising bees for the honey. And mm -hmm. some years I've had a lot of honey. Some years I've had honey combs. Some years I don't have any honey combs. Some years I have certain bees that make more propolis. So I've had just batches of, so I'm working through the winter, making my propolis tinctures, studying propolis, marketing the propolis and letting people know. So for me, it's like, I'll see what the bees are going to have for me this year. And I'll just go with it rather than trying to raise the few years. It was so frustrating trying to raise and get honeycomb and buying special boxes and doing special things with the bees and buying certain bees that do better comb, that make better comb. And now it's like, whatever you want to give me bees, I'll take. So yes, the beekeeping has evolved and my work evolves based, based on that. I don't get attached to what's going to happen this year other than I'm going to show up and do what I always do and, and be in my yard and build bee boxes and see how it goes. 
That seems, honestly, that seems like the best approach, you know, hearing you speak like that about it. Because I think, you know, you're just in, in helping the bees do inherently what they're going to do anyways. And you can try so hard to get them to do something different that you might want that's, you know, more appealing to your desires. But the bees are going to do them anyways, which I've also learned. Um, and I think if we can just support them in doing what they're already doing, they're, they're going to be that much happier and healthier in, in the process. And um, so I think that's, that's really fantastic. And I think, um, actually just real quick, can you explain to us for people that don't know what propolis is? Um, cause I think it's a bit of a buzzword in some of the wellness scenes now. And I think, um, it deserves a little spotlight here. If you could share a little bit more about what that is. Yes. Um, um, very good, very good question. And it mm -hmm. can, it, um, has to do with COVID too, is why I've gotten so much into propolis making and different types of tinctures, but propolis is the sap and I compare it mostly to frankincense or pine trees. When the trees leave a sap out, the bees will go up and they'll get that sap and bring it in just like they do their pollen. And what I've seen them do with it, I've seen hives with mice and lizards where they'll propolis the whole critter that got into their hive rather than getting the, the creature out. Uh, and I have homemade boxes, so some of my boxes are wonky. So if my lid isn't quite fitting the hive properly, they'll propolis and they'll wax it and they'll uh, seam it up and seal it. And then that propolis they also use in their comb. They use it um, for different types of things in their hive. I have my hives, I have one inch, one and a half inch, they're probably one inch holes that I put in there. And in the winter, they'll propolis it up so that the hole gets smaller so that they don't have so much cold air coming in. And then in the spring, they'll start opening it back up. So they use it for all kinds of things. And the studies on propolis that were done a few years ago, the um, biggest study that I'm aware of in the, in the States came out of um, New Mexico. Um, and I can't remember the woman's name, but she's doing a program this weekend, again, back in New Mexico. But her studies show that the higher the propolis amount, uh, the quantity in a hive, the higher the antibacterial level was in the hive. So it's just not a glue like beekeepers thought for a while. It's actually doing something in there. And when beekeepers used to go in there and scrape it all out because it was hard and pasty and sticky and fling it, it would lower the health of the bees. So now we're understanding that the propolis is really a good thing. The studies from that have gone on to, to uh, cause research on what is it, if it does that for the bees, can it do it for humans? And it can, it, uh, the propolis is highly antibacterial. And I'm in an apitherapy program, international apitherapy program out of Romania. And I hear from a lot of doctors and researchers that have been telling me most, mostly in the last two years with COVID that they're taking their propolis and they're making tinctures with propolis and an herb that's uh, antiviral or that they're seeing fights the COVID or certain types of SARS. So taking propolis and uh, ashwagandha is one that uh, mm -hmm. uh, beekeeper in Sri Lanka sent me the information on and making those tinctures. And he swore, and, and I don't want to say this out of line, or get in trouble for claiming something, but he said that he used it for preventing and treating COVID in his in his wellness center. He had a wellness center, and then I've heard from other people, um, ashwagandha and propolis was the, another area of the world that people were 
were using the combination. Um, I was using chaparral. Chaparral is a highly antibacterial and antiviral herb in America. So I make chaparral propolis. So propolis tincture on its own is powerful. And then when you mix an herb with it, it synergistically increases the properties of both of the propolis and the herbs. So I've been experimenting and doing a lot of things this year with and last year with the combination with that herbal combination of the propolis. And then what I do personally is if I make uh, ashwagandha, I started out in the fall with ashwagandha propolis, and then I switched to uh, propolis with chaparral for a couple months. And then I made some um, elderberry propolis. So I'm constantly changing, changing things up as time goes on. So my body doesn't get too uh, comfortable. And, and then the treatments that I use won't be as powerful as my belief. That's amazing. I, I definitely find the wax on wax off approach to be the most effective too. So your body gets the full potential of the medicine at any given time. And I think that sound like the research sounds amazing as a, as far as the, the propolis and mixing that with other things, especially ashwagandha, I can see how beneficial that would be uh, just relaxing, you know, into the parasympathetic nervous system again. So promoting uh, what your body again does inherently on its own and just the driving force with the propolis there. I think that's great. And that reminds me of, um, in your work, I know that you talk a lot about, um, herbal infused honeys and there's two types of honeys, you know, we have, um, and actually I could let you describe them further, but we have, uh, herbally infused honeys. And then you have a honey that you expose the bees to, and it's actually in the process of the harvesting and everything like that, that the honey kind of works its way, um, or the herbs work their way into the honey that way. Um, so you can, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and what the processes look like on both ends and, and maybe, I don't know which one you're, you're drawn to more than the other, or if there's just a, a case in time for, for each of them in different scenarios. Yeah, probably the answer is for everything. It depends on the case in point, uh, with people, with times, with seasons, but then also what is there available? So uh, what you're describing is we can have, I can have, for example, in the past, I was in Arizona before I was here and Arizona doesn't grow much of anything. It's like the total opposite of what grows here. There's a certain microclimate I've heard that grows here that's second only to one in China with a variety of everything. And oh, then wow. we have Arizona, which has like four or five different things that grow all the time. And then there's a couple other things. So it's hard getting things in Arizona as far as a variety. But in my yard, I had chaparral or creosote it's sometimes referred to and some other things. And then I was growing lavender and I had one of my, and then I, and that those were, let me think, the chaparral was growing naturally. I planted some lavender and then I sprinkled some clover to be a bee feed as a pollinator. And I got a really nice, creamy, light, thick honey. Like within two months of taking it out of the hive and in a container, it just was thick and white and creamy. And it's just smelled incredible. And I sent it to, there's one place that I know of in, in United States, the Texas A&M, and I don't know if they, they're still doing it, but they, I would send honey for poll, uh, pollen testing and content to see what type of pollen made that honey. And that particular honey was, uh, the report came back that it was clover, lavender, and chaparral, and then a bunch of other little, little amounts. But I knew that those were three of the basic properties. So for somebody that needed the calming down and also maybe had like a chronic issue, that honey would have been good for them. 
I would never have said that when I got the pollen, I wouldn't put on my honey, this is lavender, this is clover, whatever. I never made any claims unless I had it pollen tested. And then sometimes I still didn't do that. I called mine central Arizona honey usually. Uh, but then I had some honey, I put some bees in the um, forest in the middle of Arizona everything was chaparral and chaparral only blooms flowers maybe every i've seen it seven or eight years so oh, one year it bloomed out flowers and my honey was almost a black honey and i had it tested and it was like pure chaparral so then i would do something different with that so those types of honeys when you get them pollen tested you know what they are the honeys that I get now, I think I know what they are just from my experience of having um, honeys tested and what the results are. And still I'll get them tested and, and I'm, I'm surprised, but as time goes on, I'm getting a little closer to guessing, but I still don't like to guess. But the pollen tests are expensive. So I only know a couple people in the whole United States that will do this. But I'm always encouraging beekeepers, like don't just make up stuff or call it wildflower because it's white, call it clover. It could be a lot of different things. Or if it's dark, mm -hmm. it's um, tree honey or, or fur honey or oak honey or um, a nut honey. Right. You don't really know that. So let's quit just making up stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. Then, <laughs> and then when I do have different honeys, I will take, and these are infusing honey. So I might have a light honey. I have no idea what it is, but I know that lighter honeys take on the um, flavors of herbs better than a dark honey. So if I have my own light honeys and before it gets thickened too much, I'll take a quart jar and put the honey, the light honey in, then I won't put the light honey in, I'll put my herbs in. So I'll go out my yard and I'll pick, I have six, seven, eight different um, types of mints and I'll pick some of each and I'll wash them and I'll roll them in a towel and pat them, get them pretty dry and I'll put them in the jar and then I'll pour honey over them. And against what everybody else says, I put it out in the sun because I believe the sun's gonna pull the oils out versus putting it in a dark corner. And then in two weeks, I'll pull that, the plant material, and I'm using mint as an example, but it could be, I use all kinds of things, but I pull the materials out and it's coming out of this quart jar of honey that's been in the sun so it's not real dry and these, the plant material is dry as dry can be. And it's like, so I going, well, this was really something to see that, but all the oils from the plant have gone into the honey. And then I'll take those pieces of plant material and I'll lay them out my someplace in my yard and the bees are just like all over it. So they're cleaning up any honey that's left on there. And they're also getting the, if there's any oils in the plant material, which I, I believe like helps them and with their own health. So those are the two different ways that you can get different types of flavored honeys. And then whichever method I use that I know what they are, then I direct them towards um, my client's health issues or my own health situations. In general, I know that the darker honeys have higher antioxidants and the uh, lighter honeys are sweeter. So if somebody comes to me and they're just getting started with a, a healthy path, and they kind of like honey and they might use it in their coffee for a sweetener substitute. I'm like, okay, well, you're not gonna like dark honey. <laughs> so <laughs> let's find you some nice, mellow, light honey. 
and then let's try to keep it out of your coffee um, and try it straight or try it in some oatmeal or try it in something else and use the honey more. I'm all, I don't think of honey as a sweetener. It's a, to me, no matter what I'm doing with it, I'm fermenting a lot right now. So I'm fermenting it for the, the gut purposes. If you have a healthy gut, you're going to have a healthy body and a healthy life is, is my thought. So um, that's how I use the honeys. And those are the two different types of honey. So most people think honey is honey and it's a sweetener, but to me, there's such a variety of honey and, and it can be used to me as an apitherapist. I don't know what honey or the products can't be used to heal. And even my mother said to me the other day, she says, well, what if you break your leg? Cause I hurt my knees doing something crazy, silly. Um, and I was using herb product or herbs and epitherapy products on my knees and she says well what if you broke it you think you're just going to fix them and I'm like well I would probably go out and pick some comfrey and then I would boil or warm up some beeswax and yeah I could probably fix the knee (laughs) (laughs) expecting me to say no okay I go to the hospital and I'm like no I that wouldn't even occur to me to go to the hospital I would still figure something out so I'm a um, apitherapist and naturalist, like down to the core. I, I'm right there with you too. If, uh, if there's a, and I, and I think there is a natural way to approach most situations. Of course, there's a time and a place for, for the, the allopathic as well. But I think there's so many wonderful ways that we can, we can use what's growing around us first. And especially honey, it's just such a great driver for um, herbal medicine and even topical use as well. I feel like in a salve, it would be, you know, it's always amazing, like using comfrey and stuff like that. So I think that's great. And I'm glad you touched on the, the left over herbs once you once you infuse them in the honeys because that was going to be one of my questions um we do the same thing and maybe you can speak to your thoughts on this obviously you've been beekeeping a lot longer than i have um but we'll often leave you know old honey or not old honey but see the leftover remnants of honey we've collected and things like that for the bees you know once especially when we get to um when the flowers start dwindling and there's not much for them um, so we'll leave old honey. And I know some people frown upon that, but um, what's your take on that? Do you think it's safe and it's fine to uh, go about that practice of giving them honey that they've already harvested to then use for nutrition after the fact? Yeah, I have done that off and on over the years, whenever I can. Right now I have some honey that a friend of mine gave me. It um, He's a commercial beekeeper. So all he does is jar it, warm it or warm it spins it warms it jars it sells it and some of it had crystallized so and i i use that for different things so he gave it to me in the bottom of a bucket and it had i could it had ants dead ants on the top and i'm like i don't i'm not even gonna strain this or anything so i have it outside now with my bees and i and when it warms up i'll go out there and i'll scrape a couple chunks off and i'll put them in a tray that's out there and the bees will come out i've seen them out at, at the 50 degrees i'm going after that And what I used to do in Arizona, I would buy a bag of um, the street people would sell uh, grapefruit or oranges or apples every so often. Usually it was citrus and I would just cut them all up. Sometimes I would eat them or squeeze them. Sometimes they're they're not the edible types, but I would take the extra honey if I had extra honey or old honey and I would drizzle it all on there. And there were times, most of the time I would go out, I would put oranges, cut up oranges and they would eat, the whole orange would disappear except for the tiny outside, not even the inside white. They would, the bees would just use that all up when they were hungry enough and needed something. 
so yeah I just do like random whatever um I'll take my compost I'll if I cut up a pineapple and have my pineapple scraps I'll put it I'll stop on my way to the compost pile and leave it closer to their hive and they'll go in there and they'll scoop out and eat eat it down to the skin and then it works its way to the compost pile so I don't have any routine that I try to stick with I just try to incorporate everything in my life together and and make it work no that's awesome I I feel like it's I, there's a lot of rules around beekeeping I've come across that are very black and white. And I, I'm like you, I, I like to operate in the gray with most things. Um, and, and on the same notion, I like to, things that I think are good for, for us are, are likely good for the bees. So there's probably, you know, several exceptions there, but I think um, if, if we need it for the most part, it's, it's good for them too. And I love the idea of being able to supplement nourishment for them in seasons where they, the diversity outside isn't necessarily the greatest, especially in our temperate climate here. Um, we have such a short, growing season as it is. So there's a lot of, a lot of scenarios where I'm having to supplement. So I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to hear you're, you're in the same boat there. That's, that's awesome. And that's good to know. Um, and, and while we're still on the topic of honey, I know in a previous conversation, you and I had chatted about, um, you had teaching a program to, um, a group in a prison. Could you tell me, I'm, I, ever since you had mentioned it, I was so curious to hear how that uh, opportunity came up and how uh, the experience unfolded. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it seems like so long ago, but it wasn't. It was, I've been here three years in Georgia now, and I had just moved here. I wasn't even unpacked, and a, a man, a fellow in southern Georgia was working in a prison system and they wanted a beekeeping program going and he was contacting the local beekeeper, beekeepers, the states, uh, people on Facebook. And he kept coming to me and saying, I need help, I need help, can you help me? And I would try to direct him to people. And then he, I think he got some help or some ideas and he says, well, I don't know where to get equipment from. And I says, well, I'm cleaning my stuff out. Let me see what I can send you. So as I was cleaning up stuff, I would send him, um, something but then I would say okay with what I sent you I'm going to send you a, like a materials list and information on it and then he couldn't make copies and then I was making copies and then I it just kind of evolved again like beekeeping does to um, and then it was through the season too well I'm um, putting propolis traps on my hive and I have three extra so I'm going to send them to you and here's a sheet on what propolis is so he ended up with, he organized, I think, 10 to 13 guys he had in the program. And every periodically two or three weeks, I would send them some materials that they would put in their notebook. And it was throughout the year, like in the spring, it was certain materials and then the summer and then the fall. And then uh, they start, they got their bee equipment together and then somehow they got bees. And so it was me to him, to them. And then they would, and they were worksheets. So then they came back to him and he'd send them to me. And then I would write these, I would write on their materials. And um, he said he couldn't believe how much time I was spending. And I said, well, if they're serious and they want to learn this and they need to learn a trade, this is important stuff. So I would write on personally on all their stuff. Well, this was the right answer, but have, had you thought about this? Or maybe when you're doing this in the field, try this. And I think around the second year, close to the second year, he started sending me pictures. And the one he sent me, I got an eight by 10, like no letter, no anything, but an eight and a half by, or an eight by 10 picture of the guys pulling their 
and they also had other people telling them and directing them but I was trying to do the natural beekeeping and he sent me, they were holding a frame and it had fresh comb with no plastic frame. And it was just gorgeous. And it had the, um, the honey and I think some pollen in there. And, and I have it here somewhere cause it was, and I have it on my website and it was like a perfect picture of beekeeping. So I think after two years he lost, and I thought he was a volunteer, but I found out that he was paying to do, help these guys in council and do retraining. But then he lost his position with COVID when COVID came in 220. So, um, and it was just like, right. It, and it was perfect timing for everything. It was like, they started when I was getting, could help them get materials and things. And then at the end, uh, they had gone through it over a season of everything. They had gotten their bees. They were getting some honey. I think they sent me some honey and then they sent me a clump of a clump and they like made it into a baseball <laughs> of propolis. But when they were telling me what's this black stuff, I was teaching about propolis when they want to know, well, why, why don't, why did you send us frames with no plastic? Like, where's the plastic? I'm like, you're not getting plastic <laughs> and explaining it to them. So um, it was a nice course that wasn't really planned out but it was a wonderful opportunity for them and then the people in the prison and the ward want to know when are you can have honey we can start doing stuff and, and using honey or selling the honey or whatever and I don't know what's happened with that since then I've kind I've I had contact with the warden and I could contact them but um, I started off not putting my name on anything and I didn't want anybody to know and then the guy I was working with started talking about my name and I'm like okay well great like Anybody can go online if they want and know and find out who Belladonna is and where she's at. And I wasn't real comfortable with that, but then it was too late. So that was how that, that whole thing evolved. And then I kept track of everything and have all the paperwork. If I'm going to teach a remote type of beekeeping program, I thought when I started that, well, this would be good for some kind of remote program too, if, if it needed to be taught. So I, I kept mm -hmm. all that material. So that was quite a, opportunity it was a whole lot of work <laughs> <laughs> but like you said at least you still have all the stuff now to create a program with everything that you used and so I know you said it was season-led learning what did that look like was it you gave them information during you know like spring summer fall winter or was it more like question answer based or what did it what did that look like um it was both of those I had like maybe so say it's this week and it's the beginning, it's February. It's, so I want them to start thinking it's beekeeping season. So I would send them information on setting up for the spring, like getting ready. What do you want to think about? If you want to think of like, what are your goals? Do you want bees that produce more honey? Do you want pollinators? Like, what do you want? Um, and then pollinating is uh, important. So we did go with like this time of the year, pollinators, what do you have planted around your hives? What grows in your area? And then I was getting seeds. And I think I sent them a craft project where they, I sent them like clay with seeds so they could make seed bombs and even throw them outside the gates at the prison or whatever they're, they're in there with. Um, so it was all encompassing. And then, um, so it was information, questions, information, questions. And at the end, it was like a test, answer these. And then that's what was sent back to me. So they could keep their training material. Right. And then I got their um, question and answer, sent it back, and then they could put it in there ideally. I don't know if that's how they did it or not. Oh, wow. 
What a great program. I'd be so curious to know if they're still um, like operating with the hive and I'd be curious to know if they're still going. I think that's such a great thing. And it would be cool if more prisons could have it because we just need more bees and we need more people to care about bees and education and awareness is so key. And I think, um, you know, anyone that hears about everything going on with the bees, they usually want to do something. Um, it's just getting the awareness out there. And I think that's fantastic. And I love how that all unfolded. That's fantastic. Um, and so I know you touched on since we were talking about the seasons and um, for people that don't know, a lot of people ask me even, you know, what are the bees doing right now? Do they migrate? Do they hibernate? Like what do they do during the winter um, for, for places that obviously have more temperate climates? I know in, in different areas, this would be a little bit different, but um, can you speak to this a little bit on what's going on in the hive right now? If you are where we are in the middle of, of a February cold, frigid winter? <laughs> yes. Um, and that's a good question too. And then the answer again, it's always depends. So if anybody's watching this, it's a beekeeper. The answer will depend on where you're at. And even where I'm at in Georgia, I'm up on top of a mountain and there's people straight down 10 minutes from me that have a different climate. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to be warmer. So their bees, if it's 50 degrees out there, bees might be coming out. If they have a different type of bee than me, their bees might be coming out when it's 50. I had bees, I had Africanized bees in Arizona and these things were like, so they're supposed to be African. They weren't even supposed to acclimate to the colder climate of central Arizona. And these crazy things would come out. It would be 38 degrees and these things would be out foraging or coming out go, doing their business and going to the bathroom and cleaning their hive and whatever. But they were just, it was insane to watch these bees. It was like so cold and they were still uh, being Africanized and shouldn't have been acclimated coming out and, and doing their stuff. So nothing could hold down the Africanized bees. Wow. Uh, my bees will come out now on these warmer days. And then if it gets colder, they won't, which is a worse situation for them than, than your bees. If your bees, so what the bees do and they don't, it's not, there's a term for it and it's not hibernate, but they'll, as a season gets cold, they'll just keep clumping and clumping. And there's a movement on the inside of the hive to keep basically to keep the queen alive and the clean and the queen warm. And as bees get older and die off or get weaker, then they just fall off. So that clump that's working with the queen might start out like this, might take up the whole box. And then as the season goes on, it gets smaller. In my case, what's happening is they're, um, it's called breaking, um, breaking brood. No, what, there's a term when they um, break from this. So it's warmer out. So my bees are breaking up and opening up and they're out there feeding and bringing food in and probably eating some of the honey in the hive. And then they uh, go back in together and they have to do that over again. Well, all that is taking so much energy. So when I have my wonderful every other week, it's nice here, that's not really good for my bees. It would be better if they, as it's cold, they're just, they're almost hibernating and they're almost, and when I first start beekeeping and I would uh, go into a hive. I remember going into a hive. It was like March and I'm like, are they still, I'm going to check this hive and see if they're alive. And I opened them up and they were like, there were dead bees falling off the outside. And I'm like, okay. So they all froze to death. So I pulled them out and set them down and I'm doing something else. And they started coming back to life again. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I put them back in there <laughs> because they hadn't come apart to the, to, and, and they lived through that, um, through that ordeal. So they um, manage through the winter, usually. Uh, my 
one of my hives, I couldn't find the queen back in like October and it had honey in it and pollen and some different stuff. I'm like, okay, there might not be a queen so I could pull all the stuff out and save it and get something or I could just leave it alone and come spring, I might not have honey or pollen and the bees might be dead and I might not get anything. So every fall, it's like when I see struggling hives, it's like, which way am I gonna go with it? And I left them alone. And the fact that they're coming out and still doing their business and feeding when it's warmer, I'm thinking there might be a queen and I just missed her. Oh, wow. And you think they had swarmed or? No, um, they're just, as far as their size, you mean? Oh, I thought you meant a, a bee had left and swarmed. Oh, that's sorry. I misunderstood you. Oh, no, they're just coming out and they're, they come out and go to the bathroom, do their stuff but I have um, my clumps of honey is maybe 10 feet away from them. So I'll go over there. In fact, yesterday I dropped another clump on this clump of honey and the bees were under the honey, maybe staying warm or something. When I dropped it, I don't know, like 30 or 40 bees come all out and they're like, oh, all crazy. Like what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it makes me think of our first year when we were beekeeping and, and I, being a natural beekeeper, I'm sure you can speak to this a little bit better. Um, we had lost our first colony for um, over the winter to Varroa mites. And I don't know if that's an issue where you are as well. I, I imagine so, I think. Um, in, in your case, how do you approach that? Would you still use the mite strips that most people um, recommend? Or how would you go about that just to give them that extra little chance going into the winter? Here's, my, here's what I've been taught and my understanding is from natural beekeepers on mites. And um, there's a man up in, I think he's in Idaho now. His name is Michael Bush. If you haven't had contact with him, look him up. He's been beekeeping for, I believe, 40 some years now. Naturally beekeeping, has had hundreds of hives for decades and decades. The guy knows what he's doing. Right. So I was writing to him years ago when I was first starting getting a lot of info and he's got a lot on his website. And then I ran into him at two different conferences one year. So I tell him now he's my friend. And he's invited me there to work on the farm and um, people say, don't say this. I feel like I'm too old to go out and start working on other people's <laughs> farm and learning that way. I have other ways of learning. Uh, but whenever I write to him about anything, he's just been real helpful. <laughs> but one of the biggest things that he taught me way back when was he said, when he started beekeeping, there weren't plastic frames. That's how long ago. And everybody did natural beekeeping. And he said, there weren't any Varroa mites. And then he started seeing that, he started noticing that people, when they started using the plastic frames, he started hearing about more varomites and more people were losing their bees. So he says he wondered over the years if there was a relationship or if it was just coincidental. And then he contacted, I believe uh, one of the, or a couple of the companies that were making the plastic frames and together they, figured out that when they pour the frame and they're constantly making those, the comb within each piece of plastic gets a little bit bigger. Right. So the plastic comb versus natural comb, they're different sizes. And the natural comb sizes are smaller and the, because of the size and the honey and what the bee process is within that comb, there is not enough time for mites to gestate. 
but they because they need a few more days. But when you're using plastic comb, it allows for the gestation time of the varroa mites. So he had told me when I first started beekeeping, if you let your bees make up their own comb, you're not going to have varroa mite problems. So there are times when I'll have plastic. If I go out and get a swarm and I'll catch them on a plastic um, frame and I'll, that will be in my hive for a while or might get moved around. But in general, my bees always have made their own comb and I've not had mite problems. And then the other thing is, is in Arizona where I had bees for 12 or 13 years, Africanized bees are a little bit smaller than regular bees. They naturally make their comb a little smaller and their bees don't have the same, their bees don't have the same gestation time. So they are not, they are not known to have um, bromide issues either. So mm -hmm. as I had Africanized bees in Arizona, I didn't have a mite problem. And then I brought bees from Arizona to here. And a friend of mine told me about some mat that you put in your hive and you turn the heat on. It's also, it's a more natural way to kill the bromides but you slowly bring the heat up in the hive. Have you heard of these? I haven't. Mighty, mighty mats or something they're called. And they yeah. bring the heat up in the hive to a certain point that the varroa mites die off and drop down. So you bring the heat up slowly to a certain degree and it doesn't affect the bees. Then you let the heat drop down and then you pull the mat out and you can see the how many mites you have. Wow. Know what percentage of mites your hive probably has. So he, brought me his mat over and I tried it in two of my hives and I pulled them out and I didn't have any mites. And he's like, well, did you get the heat up high enough? Did you do this? I'm like, I don't think I have mites. <laughs> I've like never had a mite issue. And I've had problems like they'll abscound every so often or something happens. And first thing everybody says, well, you have mites, you have mites, you have mites. Well, maybe I did or maybe I didn't, but whenever I've tried to identify them or I've pulled out my combs and I'll look at the time when you can see the mites on the bees and I have never seen or had them. So I really believe that the natural beekeeping uh, process of letting them build up their own comb has a lot to do with mites. So we do have issues here and everybody has an issue calls it mites. The bees, um, they're not like raising dogs or cats where they're gonna have a big life expectancy and then they're gonna have babies and they're gonna have life expectancy. The older beekeepers tell me that they always lost bees. They said they would abscound. They would, sometimes you knew why they died. Sometimes you wouldn't. And you would just try to raise your stronger bees to make more, to breed off of those bees instead of trying to make every single bee live, live and um, have a full hive of honey. And I think that probably came when more people started putting more focus on the honey and the money. Yeah, that makes sense. And the mass production of it all, I feel like it's the, the end goal is just so different than if you actually care for the livelihood of the bees. But I yeah. love that idea and just make, making them build their own comb from scratch and avoiding the plastic. That's such an easy way to uh, eradicate the, the mite problem. And, and it's not super invasive. And it, it probably, do you think it gives them more of a, a, because they have to build it completely from scratch, is it a skill that they're better able to hone in on, do you think? Do you think there's some sort of, um, I guess it's always inherent and they always, they know what to do um, anyway. Yeah. But do you think yeah. there's, a, yeah, do you know what I'm trying to get at? If they I can- know exactly what you're saying. When I started beekeeping and the um, first person told me to put these plastic combs in, I remember thinking, but what do the, I read about bees before I did this and the bees all have their 
their process. Like when they're born, they do this. And at two weeks, they do this at three weeks. And he's telling me about this plastic comb. And I said, but what are the bees supposed to do that are supposed to make the comb? Like, isn't that going to throw every, their whole system off? He's like, no, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> They've been doing it for years. It's fine. <laughs> I, uh, the first time we first opened up our hive and, and in hindsight, it was a good experience because when we had lost our initial hive, we got to take apart the, the, the whole box more than we would have if they were still thriving and alive. And um, we really got to get a little bit more intimate with the hive and see everything. And I saw the plastic and I always thought I'm pretty anti-plastic just in general anyways. So it, when I saw it in the hive, I wondered, um, and I thought, why are we putting something plastic in there when the bees, they exist in the wild, they don't need this. Why, why bother? Um, and I assume you're using the, the typical Langstroth system as well. Is that the case? Yeah. Um, and it, that reminds me of, I know some new beekeepers they've brought, um, or they've asked me about the, what's it called? Have you heard of the flow hive? Yeah. I was just and thinking I that love your thoughts on that. Um, for people that don't know, just a quick preface on what the flow hive is. It's basically a, a hive that was designed so you don't actually have to open up the hive as often. And it's a tap system where you can just collect honey um, on demand. Um, but because it's so different uh, in a lot of ways than uh, how bees would create their hive and everything in the wild. Um, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that, especially being a natural beekeeper and, and what your opinion is on it. Well, I remember when they first designed it, it was the largest fundraising. I think it was a GoFundMe or one of those yeah, programs, but they were, they were, they raised thousands of dollars. And then I think they raised millions of dollars before it was even before the design came out. And then I knew some beekeeping groups and even people that had paid into that to get some of the first hives and the price that it came out, I think it was like $700 for the first packages. And I don't know if it went up or went down, but the first one I saw the whole thing was plastic. Everything was plastic. And my mm -hmm. first thought was, but bees aren't like, that's not what they're inclined to want to be with. They're, usually when I find them, they're inside a tree or inside a building, but a wooden building, not a plastic building. So right off the bat, I wasn't too comfortable with it. And then over the next few years, I heard people that were getting them and it, it was kind of bizarre to me. They like, I had a call one day and a lady said, somebody gave me your number. I was in Arizona. Somebody gave me your number and said, you would help me with my flow hive. And I just got it and the bees aren't in it. So do you know what I'm supposed to do? And I'm like, you, so you thought you were getting bees in there and, and, and then other people that would get them, would you come and help me put the bees in there? And then I would put the bees in there and explain like what the parts were. And they would say, well, how soon can I crank it? Like to get my honey out. And looking at the design, the first design, and they've made all kinds of changes since then based on beekeeper feedback. But I, I, when I would look in there and the crank, so it had a crank, I don't know if you've seen it, a handle, and then there was a thing inside. And I said, well, <coughs> if the bees put their honey up top, or if the bees put their honey in there, that would be great. But sometimes the bees will put their brood in there. Sometimes the queen is up there. And if you crank that and the queen is up there, then what happens with the queen and the hive and it just didn't seem like a very good system to me and then the a couple of years later I saw it and they it was, were starting I think they put wood wood frames inside so they were starting to incorporate some wood and over the years it's been <coughs> probably 10 years I think since it came out but I don't know anybody that has them now when beekeepers somebody wants to beekeep and they look at what's going to be the easiest thing 
they would get that and the price would be high, but it was just um, seemed they were willing to pay for the easy, the ease of beekeeping. And beekeeping is not easy and it's not cheap either. It's a very time consuming, um, time intensive and financial commitment if you wanna be a beekeeper. Absolutely. I think that's, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Oh, I think I'm not a fan would be my, my short answer. <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate the honesty there. Cause I, I, I feel the same about it in as much as I find, you know, it, it, in ways it has to be invasive at certain times when you work with hives. And, um, I do, I, I still, you know, ponder sometimes over <clears throat> the bees that get lost in the process, of course. And it naturally happens as you have to open it up. And so I always wondered, but in saying that, we kind of like to do things the longer, harder way anyways, um, just to really enjoy the process. And I just find it takes, I agree with you on that, that it almost like takes you away from the process of beekeeping in such a way that it, it just puts it behind this curtain and it's just this lovely little tap and it, it gives you what you want, but it's just that instant gratification. I, I It doesn't sit well with me either. Um, I know they've since um, I think they're all wood now, and I'm sure some of the mechanisms have changed over the years as they figured out new ways of doing things that are probably a little bit better, but I'm with you on that. So I'm glad to, to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and I know we're, we're pushing the clock a little bit. I don't want to take too much of your time, um, but I just have a couple questions before we hop off. Um, I know you mentioned, obviously, some really great products that you make. Um, how can people best get connected to you and purchase those products and learn more about you? What's the, the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, the best way is probably looking at my website. I do have a Facebook presence, but I'm not on there uh, I'm, I'm, I try not to be on there very often, but if you go to my website, I have okay. uh, one page that's just a pile of information that over the years, if I write an article or come across something good, it also has a page of my products. And then there's a page of my information and, and my training, but my website is be healthy and it's B-E-E healthy dot B-I-Z. Perfect. And my email's on there. If anybody has any questions, I uh, don't post my phone or a text. I can't keep up with all that, but emails, I'll sit down once or twice a day and try to keep up with everybody's email. So those, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Okay. Amazing. Um, I'll, I'll link to um, that, uh, your, your website in the show notes and everything like that. And um one more thing, just so that everyone who listens to this can take some maybe actionable step from this. Um, what do you think personally is a, a great thing that people can do um, if they just learn about the bees and they want to help and they don't necessarily, you know, know what to do? I, I'm a huge um, advocate for rewilding. If you can rewild any area of your property, if you have that, I don't know if you know the Nomo May movement, that was a good one that took off there for a bit, plant wildflowers. Um, but do you have any ways that you in particular have? Um, would recommend people what people can do to make a, a dent in this? Yeah, I would think the biggest dent that most people can make is being conscious of the pesticides that are sprayed all over the world and are the biggest detriment to beekeeping and also to human life. I see glyphosate in bees, beehives and honeys, and I see glyphosates in human beings in the testing that I do. So it's, it's impacting all of us. It's across our whole country, it's in Canada, and I've talked to beekeepers all around the world. I went to Crete a few years ago, not Crete, um, Malta, 
I went to Crete before that, Malta, met beekeepers, and they have the same issue as everybody spraying pesticides, individuals, the cities, the states, the roads, and they can't keep their bees far enough away. And then it's just in the air. So if people could just consciously understand the impact that that's making on humans and the planet, it gets in our water and it gets in the soil and maybe not doing that themselves, maybe making other people aware. I work with some people in Arizona. We were going to the hardware stores, to Home Depot and to Lowe's and saying, we want some non-glyphosate plants, natural plants. And we did this for a whole year and they started carrying some organic plants. So just a little thing, but it could make a difference because then other people go into Home Depot and they're like, what's the difference between these plants and these plants? And um, recognizing the danger that, that that is to to all of us, I think would be the easiest and most important thing. Absolutely. Even for the, the livelihood of people, not just the bees, it, it's, it's synergistic in that way too. Yeah. And I think to touch on that as well, like it is true, the biggest voice we have often is how we spend our money. And if we can go and ask those questions and be advocates in, in those ways, even just purchasing honey from your local um, you know, beekeeper, as opposed to going to Costco or one of the bigger places and buying, you know, I'm sure you, you know about this too, but of course um, the large scale productions, they just you know, the quality of the life of the bees behind it all is, is very different. So um, I think, I think that's such a great point and that's a great way to end, end this. And, and it's something that people can do to, to make a difference. And I think that that's fantastic. So I, I so appreciate you sitting down with me today. I've learned so much personally um, and I hope everybody listening can take something away from this too. Um, and, and I so appreciate your time and, and hopefully we can chat again. I'll probably have yes, a million years yeah, to chat about with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for caring. Oh, thank you so much, Bella. I hope you have right. a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks. I hope to talk to you again. Bye-bye. I hope so too. Bye, Bella. If you've made it this far, thank you so much again for tuning in to an episode of the Heirlooms and Herbs podcast. To stay connected with us and to learn more about us, visit us on the web at www.heirloomsandherbs.ca. And we look forward to seeing you again next week.